have longed for sweet peace and for faith to increase and have earnestly, fervently prayed. But you cannot have rest or be perfectly blessed until all on the altar is Don't be upset with me. I planned on a game. I thought we were having a memory verse game tonight. Man, I don't know what's going on around here. So anyway, I'm still looking at those candy bars. Uh, kids don't get any ideas. If I see they're missing, you need to understand there is a video camera on this stage. We will find you, and we will deal with you. <clears throat> All right, first... Well, you don't even need to turn to 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. we were, uh, It's about 7.35. Last week we went kind of late, so today I'm, we're not going late today, okay? We're not doing that, all right? We're going to be on time tonight. So we're going to go ahead and make a real quick recap, and then we're going to jump into some new material. We've been addressing and dealing with this idea of the work of the Holy Spirit, and it's in conjunction with our Bible Truth series, and I've been doing that on Wednesday nights for a long time now, and... Um, we asked some questions along the way. We said, what part did the Holy Spirit play in creation? We said it was to impart life. We said, what part did the Holy Spirit play in the Old Testament overall? He said that he mainly empowered people for some special work. Uh, we noted, you know, we answered the question, what did the Holy Spirit, what part did he play 
during the incarnation of Christ. And boy, there was a number of things we addressed and dealt with. But what we did find is that his part was extremely significant and that uh, it was, he was involved in every aspect of his life, the virgin birth, the resurrection, everything in between. We asked, what part does the Holy Spirit play in the dispensation of grace? And we recognize that in that particular dispensation, it's the dispensation of the Holy Spirit and that his, he's forming the body of Christ. And we said that's so awfully important and uh, we're certainly, uh, certainly a part of that and, and, and thankful for it. But tonight I want to begin and ask this question. I want to ask, what part does the Holy Spirit play in the church then? What part does he play in the church? And again, this isn't an, isn't an exhaustive study, mind you. So, you know, you're going to be like, ah, well, boy, the pastor really let a lot of things slip by the wayside. Yeah, I know he did. And um, there's some things we'll cover in the next section, too. So it's not my goal to miss things, but uh, I did say we were going to get out of here on time. So if we're going to get out on time, we've got to leave a few things out here and there, okay? So let's do our best to do so, but by the same token, do a good job, I believe, of trying to address and deal with some things. We're going to be taking a few weeks to get through all of this. It's uh, a little longer. Uh, it's kind of like uh, the last, uh, the, the question a few ago when we said, what part did the Holy Spirit play during the incarnation of Christ? Well, this is going to be a little bit like that. There'll probably be two messages, maybe three, just in this section, okay? And then we'll have about 20 in the next section and about 30 in the next. I'm teasing. But anyway, so it'll go, it, we'll see where it goes, all right? So let's go ahead and ask that question tonight. What part does the Holy Spirit play in the church? That's a good question. And uh, we're going to have a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll ask ourselves that question to see what we come up with. Father, bless us. We need you tonight. Lord, it's always encouraging to learn things from the Word of God, and Lord, we want to grow in Christ, and Lord, we want to grow in our knowledge of you. Now, Lord, bless us. Help us, Father, to be very aware of uh, just uh, the church and what part the Holy Spirit plays. And Lord, he is so significant, and we want to thank you for that. Lord, help us, Father, to draw on him and to truly allow him to lead us. Now, bless this service tonight. Be with each of us, and may our hearts be truly knit together as we strive, Father, to understand your word and as a body, obey it. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the Catholic Church errantly has appointed the Pope as the Vicar of Christ. You may have heard that term before, that, uh, uh, you know, that the Pope is the Vicar of Christ. Well, what that they mean by that is that he's Christ's representative on earth. He speaks on behalf of Christ. And they use a word called ex cathedra. What that means, his words are binding. They're binding like Scripture is. They're, it's just as if Christ himself was speaking. Dr. A.J. Gordon, in his work on the ministry of the Spirit, writes, the Holy Spirit has rightly been called the vicar of Jesus Christ. To him has been committed the ad, uh, administration of the affairs of the church. There is but one holy seat upon earth, and that is the seat of the Holy Spirit in the church. But there is but one infallible pope, and he is the Holy Spirit. He alone can speak ex cathedra. Now listen, there's, there's, there's truth there. That's Bible truth. And you know, not only that, but the Holy Spirit provides the church with invaluable guidance, leadership, insight instruction, and authority. And moving forward, we're going to note the necessity of the Holy Spirit in the affairs of the church. He's so absolutely necessary. And so 
we're going to go ahead and continue by saying that we note the necessity of the Holy Spirit in the affairs of the church at the first council. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 15. We're going to see the first council, the first church council. In Acts chapter 15, we're going to realize as we begin to read that the Gentiles were being saved. Many of the Jews, however, believed that the Gentiles were obligated to keep the law of Moses. Of course, we know that Paul had gone forth and, and was preaching the truth and we're seeing people come to Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, the Jewish believers were really struggling with this. We know that Paul was given a mystery or revealed a mystery that the Jew and the Gentile would become one in Christ Jesus. The Jew was struggling because the Jew had always followed the law. And in many cases, the, even there were some cases where there was what was called Judaizers who virtually said, listen, you must be circumcised. You have to keep the law or you can't be saved. And so there was a lot of problems. And even those that were truly trying to obey the Lord and follow him were still kind of stuck in the past a little bit. We're struggling to move forward, if you will. And as a result of that, they were trying to tack on some works, if you will, to salvation. And uh, we're going to see that a little bit here as we look at Acts chapter 15 at the first council. So the council is called in order to settle once and for all the questions of faith, freedom, and fellowship in the church. And uh, we find the matter introduced in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Notice what it says here. It says, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Hmm. That's interesting. Now, we would say that in the Old Testament, obviously, that uh, as we noted in our, some of our Sunday morning messages, and as Brother Kavanaugh alluded to again this past Sunday, that, that the sacrifices were made, and certainly God had a system in place that had to be performed. There's no doubt that we were to follow the system, and by faith we would be saved by obeying the Lord Jesus Christ and His plan. But things were changing. Jesus Christ has died. He's been buried and rose again. His precious blood has been applied at the mercy seat. And now salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And yet, we're finding the Gentiles coming to Christ, being saved out of a very wicked lifestyle, saved out of idolatry, and they know nothing of the Jewish law, if you will. As a matter of fact, they probably were very distanced from it. And as a result of that, they saw, they didn't even realize probably that they were doing anything that would offend a Jew or that would become a problem. And yet, many Jewish believers were watching and viewing this from a distance and ultimately going back to Jerusalem and saying, wait a second, we've got these Gentiles being saved, supposedly, and they're not keeping the law. They're not being circumcised. And then other Jews were leaving Jerusalem and coming out to where they were and saying, if you're not circumcised, you can't be saved. And so at this council, we see here that James and others are saying, listen, these certain men that came down from Judea teaching the brethren and said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. He says, listen, I, I want you to understand uh, <laughs> 
That's not necessarily what we told him to tell you. Now, I want you to look, if you would, at verses 10 and 11. Paul now is going to oppose this. Paul's going to go back and say, fellas, listen, we got to get this straightened out. There's these Gentiles that are getting saved, and there are also these Jews that keep telling them they can't be saved unless they're circumcised, unless they're keeping the law. We better get this figured out, gentlemen. And notice what it says in Acts 15, verse 10 and 11. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, even as they, the Gentiles. Now, I want you to notice again in Acts chapter 15, now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples? Why do you want to bind them? Why do you want to put them uh, in a place where they're shackled? He says, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers, all those Old Testament saints that we point to as being our fathers in the faith, as well as you and me, we can't even keep this law that we're telling them they must keep. He says, we just believe that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be, will be saved. That's how we get saved, and that's how they're getting saved. So Paul and Barnabas begin now to share their story. Story after story after story, account after account of how the Holy Spirit was blessing the Gentiles with salvation. Now, we have to remember that God had dealt with the nation of Israel. That's what he primarily, that's who he dealt with in the Old Testament. That was the way God did it. But when they rejected him, of course, he turned his attention to the Gentiles. And Jews as individuals, of course, were continuing to be saved, but Gentiles as individuals were also being saved. But the nation of Israel was placed on the back burner for the time being. Paul's pointing out that these Gentiles were being saved out of idolatry. As I mentioned, out of a wicked lifestyle. That they didn't have any real knowledge of Judaism. You expect them to keep the law? They don't know really anything about it. Paul also reminds the Jews that the very law, again, that they intended to bind the Gentiles with was the very law they themselves couldn't keep. He also tells them that salvation is by grace through faith and that both Jew and Gentiles are saved the same exact way. That's summing up verse 10 and 11. So to this, James responds now. Look, if you would, in verse 19. James, again, as we mentioned already, says, Wherefore my sentence is, that we trouble them not from which among the Gentiles are turned to God. We don't want to trouble them. We don't want to put more on them than they can bear. He goes on in verse 24. Notice what he says. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, ye must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. I want to go on record, James says. I, nor these men, sent them out. They did that on their own. We didn't give that command. 
We didn't give them authorization to do so. That didn't come from the voice of the apostles in the church. That was men on their own going out and subverting you and telling you those things. That never happens today, does it? So the council basically conceded that the Gentiles should not be required to, be, to, to, to obey or to follow certain aspects of the law in order to be considered saved. They're saying that law, we're not going to hold them to that, sta- that standard. Grace is enough. They don't need to follow the law, so to speak. However, they're going to point out that the, the Gentile did have a responsibility not to offend the Jew. You say, how, how are they going to do that? Well, look at Acts chapter 15, verse 28 and 29. So they come to this conclusion. Here it is now. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Hmm. So we never sent anybody out to tell you you had to be circumcised to be saved. And it wasn't our, our doing we don't want to put any more on you than we have to, so let's get down to the nitty-gritty. This is all that we're really going to ask and demand of you as a Gentile believer in Christ. And it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well, fare ye well. Now, what he says here simply is this. The only thing we're going to ask of you and require of you is this. That you do not eat meats offered to idols. That really bothers a Jew bad. That really makes, incites anger in them. That really gets their blood boiling We just don't want you to eat things offered to idols. We understand. We understand that there are certain things that you feel free to eat that the Jew doesn't feel free to eat based on the law. There are certain animals and certain kind of fowl that we would never want to eat. Remember Peter in chapter 11 of the book of Acts? There's things we would never want to eat because it's unclean. Okay, you go ahead and eat what you want. But don't you eat that which is offered to an idol. That which was, the blood, the neck was cut and it was shed to an idol and it was burnt offering unto an idol. Don't you eat that. Don't drink the blood. So he makes it very clear. There's some things that are going to offend the Jew. Don't do those. What we're going to find is you'll find in your lesson even this week in Sunday school, you're going to find that there are some freedoms that we have in Christ, but we never have the freedom to offend or to disobey and break God's commands and laws. And this is exactly what we see going on. Even the Jew says, fine, there are animals, there are things that we will not eat, the Jew, but that's one thing. It's another thing. All we're saying is do not do this. Why? Because it offends the Jew. Don't eat meat offered to idols. Don't drink blood. (laughs) Don't do that, would you? I don't know about you, but when I see somebody drinking blood today, I get a little nervous. 
I'm not talking about a steak that's rare and it's dripping down your chin. That's okay with me. Go ahead. Enjoy. I'm talking about, you know, I don't know about that. That's not good stuff. So the Gentile may not be under the law here, but they must not give offense to the Jewish believer. So when it was all said and done, notice again that the Holy Spirit was the judge and jury here. And that's what I think, and that's the whole point of all of this. Notice in verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Ghost. Is that seemed good to the Holy Ghost? See, the Holy Ghost oversaw all that, all, all that, uh, uh, the, the, the disputing that was taking place. He, he oversaw all the, the declarations and all the details of the conference. He, he allowed all the, the, the particular matters at hand to come up and to be raised and addressed and dealt with. He planned every detail, the location of that meeting, the agenda, the order. I mean, he had Peter speak first, that Barnabas and Paul then took the floor and shared their story of Gentiles being saved across the world. And then he left James to finally stand his ground and say, this is what God has said and what we are going to do. Then he had engineered the whole thing to settle once and for all, as we said, the question of faith, freedom, and fellowship of the church. It seemed good to the Holy Ghost, but he adds, and to us, and to us. See, the apostles, the elders there in Jerusalem, they're speaking on behalf of the whole church now. They were so conscious, so aware of the Holy Spirit's leading in their lives and in the church that they had a confidence that they indeed were in the mouthpiece of God. That as they spoke, they were speaking on behalf of Christ, the Holy Spirit's presence and his power in their lives and in the ministry and in the church was so evident that when they spoke, they were speaking on behalf of God. It seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us that this is all that we're going to put on you. Again, the Holy Spirit was present and presiding over that first church council. Say, so what, what part did the Holy Spirit play in the church? Well, he was a necessity in the, he took a, a necessary part, uh, the, 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 he took the, the, the main portion or the main part, I'm trying to think, he took point, that's what I'm trying to say, he took point on the affairs of the church. Not only that, but we note the necessity of the Holy Spirit in the affairs of the church early on with Ananias and Sapphira. Turn to Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. What's his place in the church? Well, (laughs) it's obvious that, that the Holy Spirit is active in the affairs of the church. The necessity of his interaction and his the need of him in the church is so apparent. Early on with Ananias and Sapphira, we read in Acts chapter 5, verse 1, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife said, uh, sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? 
Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. I want to note three simple thoughts here. First of all, notice verse 2. And he kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, this was customary at the time. This was transpiring, it was taking place. It was not the first time it had happened. You go back into chapter 4, you're going to see, as we will here in just a moment, that it was already happening. Poverty prevailed in the early church. And, and so great was the need that many believers who possessed lands and houses sold them. They sold them and they brought the proceeds and laid them at the feet of the apostles to distribute as necessary. Turn if you would to Acts chapter 4, verse 34 and 35. It says, Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the prices of things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made to every man according as he had need. Now, before you get too awfully nervous and worry that God would have you sell your home, your lands, I want you to note words, specific words, in the passage. Look, if you would, there in verse 34. Notice he says that for as many as were possessors of what? Lands, I didn't hear you, what? And what? You see that? Plural. I think it's important to note that. Lands and houses sold them. The selling, those, that, those selling lands and houses then appeared to have owned more than one home or possessed more than one property, it seems. I mean, that's the way it reads to me. Now, again, I don't know. Someone may say, well, they were selling. I don't know. All I know is they possessed, they were many were possessors of lands and houses. Now, someone might say, well, since they're all S's, maybe they're all possessors and they each had a land and each had a house. I don't know. I, I'm, I don't know. I'll give, I don't know. Maybe I don't know my English well enough, and if I don't, would some English major let me know at the end of the service? Because I would like to correct that if I am incorrect, because I would love you all to sell your homes and give them to me. <laughs> I'll make sure I distribute it properly. Now, when I come in with an Armani suit on and a Rolex watch next Sunday, you'll know that the distribution was made. But nonetheless... In this case, they're selling lands and houses. Now, it, 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 it doesn't mean that others didn't give or sacrifice to help those in need. That's not what it's saying. I'm sure that most did, if not all. Most probably participated in this endeavor. Because, see, the hearts of these new believers was so sensitive, so filled with love, that they were willing to sell additional properties, rentals, and vacation homes in order to ease the suffering of those that were in great need in their midst. That means that what they were doing was they were actually selling that and giving away those things that weren't absolutely necessities. Now, Before we go, wow, I wonder... How much of what we possess is truly a necessity? So let's not get too comfortable. 
But by the same token, notice again the great need and these that are coming to the church, laying at the feet of the apostles for distribution. It's amazing to me. Just amazing. Notice verse 3. He goes on to make a statement here in verse 3. He says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart? Peter recognizes the enemy's part in all of this. He understands that men make decisions, but he also recognized that Satan is the great influencer. No one's influenced like Satan is. I don't care how many millions of whatever you call them on the internet is, there's no influencer like Satan. Satan may not have done the deed, but he fueled the greed. In our lives, we need to be very careful not to give place to the devil. Over in the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, the Bible says, neither give place to the devil. See, the author of the bad behavior is the devil in this case. He's the author of it. It's been said, the mother of all sin is lust, and the father of sin is the devil. By the way, sin didn't begin on earth, did it? It began in heaven. It didn't begin in the human heart, but in the soul of Lucifer himself. Lucifer, of course, being the highest uh, of the anointed cherubs. It began there. That's where sin uh, truly was, uh, began, and sin had cemented its place in the heavenlies long before it ever found its way to earth. By the way, Satan doesn't like people. He hates us. His only interest in mankind, the only reason why he even pays any attention to us at all is so that he can deceive us, degrade us, distress us, and maybe destroy us. That's the only reason he even puts up with us. It's the only reason he has anything to do with us. Because, see, the fact is that you and I were made in the image and the likeness of God. And you know what? Satan wants to deface that image all that he can. He wants to wreck and ruin everything that God created. He wants to take everything good that God has done and wreck it and ruin it. And that's why he pays attention to the earth. He doesn't do that just simply because it's fun. He does it because he has a purpose, a plan, an intention. And he wants to wreck and ruin God's plan and purpose. And he wants to ruin the image of God. Notice verses 3 and 4. He says, Why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? Again, Ananias and Sapphira has conceived a lie. They conceived this lie, and they sought to deceive the apostles in the church body. But it's interesting, their lie was uncovered by who? You say, Peter? (laughs) No. The Holy Ghost. The couple may have thought that their plan would be hidden. They thought that maybe they would benefit, you know, both by reputation and remuneration. The exact opposite took place, though. They were publicly exposed and humiliated. Their reputation was ruined, and their reward was instant death. You know, that money that they thought that they were going to enjoy, keep to themselves, they weren't using it now, were they? Why such harsh harsh punishment, we may ask? Why was God so upset? Why did he so immediately address and deal with the problem because they hadn't simply lied to men. They'd lied to him. 
They'd lied to God himself. Acts chapter 5, verse 4. While it's remained, was it not in thine own, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart that thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God? Again, the couple wasn't simply withholding a part of their possessions from the apostle or the church. They were stealing what belonged to God at this point. You say, no, it wasn't. It was theirs. No, no, you, you, you read it, and it wasn't theirs at that point. While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? So why did you come and conceive and put it at the feet of the apostles as though you had given the whole when you only gave part? You could have kept it all. You were under no obligation, responsibility to give it at all. It was up to you. You could have said we're only giving half of it, not all of it. You could have done a million different things, but when you said you were giving it all and you made a play and you were trying to present yourself as being spiritual and holier than thou, my friend, you lied not just to the apostles. You lied not just to the body of Christ. You lied to God. Wow. I want you to look, if you would, at Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 through 10 now. They stole what belonged to God, but you know, they weren't the first to ever do that. They won't be the last, will they? Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Oh, I understand. This only applies to Old Testament. No New Testament believer has to ever give. They're under grace. You're under no obligation to give a tithe. Here, here, I agree. Yours begins with a tithe and increases, according to the Bible. You're to go the extra mile. Yours isn't to begin where the, yours isn't to begin, to end where the New Testament, the Old Testament left off. It's to begin where it left off because you are under grace now. Oh, thank you, preacher. You mean we get to give more than a tithe? Yes. As you grow in Christ, you will give more. That's how it works. It always does. That's a blessing, preacher. I'm excited now. Very inspired. Will a man rob God? Malachi 3, 8 through 10. I wonder, would he? Do you think men rob God? Do you think women rob God? Of course they do. More ways than just money, but he's going to address this issue here. Yet ye have robbed me, he says, but ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? Talking to the nation. In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Now, by the way, I think it's interesting to note that when a robber comes and steals your money, he does it usually at gunpoint or a knife. He does it with threat of physical harm. He doesn't just go, he does, he's not like a thief that sneaks in and steals your money. He robs you at gunpoint. Your money or your life. And God is saying, you are robbing me. You aren't just stealing from me. You are by force taking what is mine. That's, that's scary stuff. Think about that. He says, bring you all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open to you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall be room enough to receive it. I'm going to say this. Our commitments are not merely to a pastor or a program. They are to God. 
I want you to, you never can forget that. We can't afford to steal from God. That's not good business. I wonder, have you ever thought to yourself, like I have, (laughs) man, I can't imagine what I could do with that money we give to the church over the course of a year or over the next five years. You ever done that? Sure, you probably have. I've done that. I mean, we think to our, we say, well, I could have bought a car this year. I could have bought a house over the next five years, a modest house. I could have done all of that. If only it was mine. If only I could spend it. You better stop there. Why has Satan filled thine heart? See, that thinking is of the devil, and that is to give place to the devil. That's not good. People say, what does it mean to give place? It means to think about those things that you shouldn't be thinking about and dwelling on things you shouldn't be dwelling about. And we know that they're not coming from God. They're coming from the devil because he wants to put those thoughts in your mind. And the longer you think about them, the more they ingrain themselves and saturate you with. And now you become the thought and you ultimately act out on it. Pretty soon, you're, every time you're dropping something in the offer, you're going, man, if only I could keep it. Man, I'll tell you what, I'm looking around. I don't think they're always doing right with the money. Man, I'll tell you what, I think I, I don't know if I can trust this regime. I mean, you know how it gets, right? You say, I don't know. Good for you. Don't get there. But you know what? It wouldn't be hard to get there if we're giving place to the devil. If there's problems and it's legit and you can put your finger on it, then put your finger on it and let's deal with it. But don't let the devil place thoughts in your mind and run with thoughts. At first, the couple was said to have lied to the Holy Ghost in verse 3. We see that. It says here, and we're we're going to close here in just a minute. He says here in verse 3, Why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? But in verse 4, he says, Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Once again, you already know this to be the case, but the logical conclusion then is the Holy Spirit is God. And boy, the Holy Spirit is active in the affairs of the church, as Ananias and Sapphira found out. See, you're not just dealing with men or women. You're dealing with God himself. This is God's institution. By the way, the home is too. Be very careful. It's just that we need to be very careful when we're dealing with things in the church because we're not just dealing with mankind. We are dealing with God himself. And the Holy Spirit is very active in the church in the New Testament for sure. Whether it be the first council or in the lives of one of the first members, again, the Holy Spirit is active in the affairs of the local church. Let me ask you this. How active is the Holy Spirit in your life and in mine? He's active. As you read through the New Testament, you see the Holy Spirit working in many different ways in the church. I'm wondering, how active is he in our lives? You say, but he is active. Okay, 
The question is, how sensitive then are we to his promptings and persuasion? We know he's active. We know he's busy even. But are we sensitive to that? In Ephesians 5.18, the Bible says, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. How in the world are we to do that? As a matter of fact, he says, This I say, then walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So we're to be filled with the Spirit, and we're to walk in the Spirit. That means that something inside should be happening, and it should be affecting the outside positively. You say, how's that supposed to happen? Let me give you a real quick way for that to happen. In the book of Luke chapter 11, verse 13, the Bible says, if, the, if ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? I guarantee the one thing you have to do in order to, be, to, to, to truly be led of the Spirit is to ask for him. Ask for him. Holy Spirit, I want you to lead me and guide me. Holy Spirit, I'm opening myself up to you. Holy Spirit, fill me. Holy Spirit, take control of my life. How active is the Holy Spirit in your life and in mine? He was active in the early churches. We're going to see in the future as well. We'll continue to look at a few other areas. But he was active, very active. And Ananias and Sapphira and the early church members. He was active in that first council. He's active today too. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for just the fact that you work and move in our midst. And Lord, we need to be very sensitive to your Holy Spirit, to your working and moving. Lord, we thank you for sending him, our comforter, our guide. Lord, you, you uh, have blessed us so awfully much by allowing him to indwell us and to live inside us. Lord, may we honor you now in our lives. And Lord, may we say things and do things and give ourselves to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, we'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Father, we'll thank you and we'll praise you as you give us victory. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand, every head bowed, every eye closed.